we try to find out what are the things that are not covered in the dialogue techniques book. So we find found, of course, a long list of things, but we shrink it down to five main things. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Wednesday, and in these episodes, Sangram and myself, James Carberry, focus on personal development. We'll share books and other resources that are helping us get a little bit better every single day. And remember, like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. All right. Today's guest host is Steve Abt, a good friend of mine. He's an ABM strategist, Quarry. He's already done a whole series. You might be familiar with him now. He has done a four-part series on ABM for the enterprise where he had people from Oracle and, and many of the companies just share the practical tips and, and techniques that they're using for account-based marketing strategies that goes across, by the way, marketing and sales, not just marketing. And, and this time, he's bringing a couple of amazing guests who are, again, not only thought leaders, but also practitioners. So you're going to get a real taste of what it takes to do these big deals with account-based mindset. Here we go. Hello, Flip My Funnel. Welcome to part two of our time with Christopher Engman and our mega deals conversation. So I hope that many of you listened to episode one because it is chock full of B2B sales and marketing goodness. Christopher is a four-time company founder, a multiple-time CRO, CMO, CEO leader. He's an investor in 12 companies across MarTech, CleanTech, and other fields. And he's also one of the world's leading authorities in mega deals. And I'm going to talk in a moment about what exactly a mega deal is because it's a lot more than just a big deal. Christopher has a ton of personal experience here. And he's also the co-author of a forthcoming book about mega deals, where, where he and his co-authors have done years of extensive research in this space. Speaking with Christopher is an amazing opportunity to up your sales game, your marketing game, your strategic game in so many ways. First off, Christopher, welcome back to part two. It's a real thrill to have you here. Thank you, Steve. What an intro. Yeah, you know, I, I said this at the, in the first episode. I don't know how to introduce you because I feel like I could talk for five minutes and I'd still be in the intro phase. And, and so, you know, kind of uh, cutting it down to something manageable is tough. I think I hit a lot of the key things. And before we dig in today and really talk about how all of us can apply the methodologies and the learnings of the mega deal superstars to our own businesses, regardless of our deal sizes. Before we get there, I want to just take a minute to calibrate around what a mega deal is, because sometimes some people might think, oh, just, you know, it's just a large, large ticket deal, you know, no big deal. It's just an extension of what I'm already doing. But that, that's not really true. So as we covered in episode one, a mega deal is a large money deal. You define it as $10 million plus and going well up into the billions. I believe you said you've studied deals uh, as large as $15 billion. 
Right. A second feature of them is, is this ultra complexity. And it's not just the complexity of, of the product or the solution that you're selling. It's the complexity of the deal itself and the complexity of the ecosystem in which you are selling the deal. Third aspect is that a mega deal involves change management. It's not just about selling a, a high volume of some commodity product or, or something similar. It's about managing change within the entire ecosystem and the, the client organization. And that these deals often cross across hardware, software, and services all coming together in some way. So did I, did I get that right? That that's essentially what we're talking about when we say a mega deal? Yeah, that's the perfect definition. So, and yeah, you got it. Okay. All right. Well, it's about time for me to stop talking and uh, let's get you going here. So we explored a lot of things in the first episode and one area that we really didn't have time to dig into, and I want to take a few minutes right now, and that's around the cornerstones of a mega deal and, and how all of this comes together to become such a profoundly powerful movement within the B2B space. Right. So I, I think what we tried to do in our research was to find what is not covered. So there's a ton of literature on both B2B sales and B2B marketing, and, and especially in the complex selling part of the world. So as you can imagine, in, in this kind of research, what you try to do and what we try to do was to see what, what is not covered in normal sales and marketing literature. So we really try, I mean, there's a ton of books about what we would call dialogue techniques, meaning how do you run a dialogue to move a deal to the, to the goal, goal line? And typically, you can come very far with dialogue techniques if the decision group is 5.7 people that many people talk about. So, but, but when you go into larger deals, and I, I'm sure that even people doing medium-sized deals of like $1 million and kind of that range and even below that, they realize that the, the people involved on the customer side and even in the ecosystem around the customer is, is vastly bigger than the 5.7 statistics. I, I, well, we can talk at length about that, but let's not do that. So, so we try to find out what are the things that are not covered in the dialogue techniques book. So we find, found, of course, a long list of things, but we shortened it down to five main things. And those are, one, to really get big money out of, the cl- out of a client, your, what you're selling needs to fit one of their key initiatives. And big corporations have three to five, typically, initiatives. They are big strategic programs that are driving the company towards their goals. So you need to fit into those because that, that's where the big bucks are allocated. You can't find mega deal money outside of a key initiative unless there's a, an immediate crisis or something. But in, in business as usual, it, it, they are in key initiatives. That's where the big buckets of money are. You need to fit into those to be able to pull out those kind of sums. The second, the second cornerstone, we call it ecosystem. And the, diff, the thing here is that you're not only selling to a bigger audience than the 5.7 decision makers inside the target account, you're selling to an ecosystem of players outside of the account. So consultants, and I'm sure many of you listening to this can, can, can relate to this. So technical consultants, strategy consultants, other systems that are interfacing with you in one way or the other that you you have to kind of have on your side. 
So things like that. So you're selling to an ecosystem, not, not a 5.7 stakeholder group. And then the third one is actually very related to ecosystem. We call it consensus. You need to create a consensus among a pretty vast amount of stakeholders inside the target account and outside. So basically using the ecosystem understanding and then running consensus tactics towards that ecosystem. The fourth cornerstone, we call it Troyans or Troyan horses. Those are, so what we've seen in the research, and actually everyone we've interviewed have, have, have confirmed this, unless you have the silent informants inside the customer organization, you're going to lose. One lady doing mega deals at Accenture, she called them mushrooms, like they grow in the dark, they're silent Informant. So they, they, want to, they want you to win, but they're not the champion. So of course, the champion is important in the mega deal as well, but these, this is a new type of stakeholder. They're typically further down in the organization. They're feeding you essential information. They're helping you to win the deal silently by sharing information. That's the way for them to exercise power. And the last cornerstone is risk mitigation. Risk mitigation is vastly more important than unique selling points and value in mega deals. I mean, of course, you need to deliver value, but low risk when you put this kind of amount of money on the table is way more important than, than high upside. So, so and that, is, that is key uh, among the, the leading mega dealers. So those are the five cornerstones, key initiatives, ecosystem understanding, consensus, touring horses, and risk mitigation. I think the key initiatives, I'd, I'd like to start there. Because I think that one is also really true as you come down the food chain a little bit into some more modest sized deals. And I see a lot of sales and marketing teams missing this. They're, they're kind of pounding away on their value prop, their script, what have you. And they're not taking the time to read those financial reports and, and otherwise understand what the key initiatives of their target clients are and how they can really tie their what they're offering right directly into those key initiatives. Because as you said, that's, that's where the big buckets of money are, but that's also where the urgency is. That's where the executive you know, time is spent. Failing to do that, I think, is a, is a big problem and, and unless you're selling a very small and easy transactional sale. How do you best do that beyond some of the obvious things? As, as I said, you know, you're going to read those financial reports. You're going to look for, you know, maybe statements made in the press. You're going to look for maybe videos of some of their executives speaking at conferences. I think those are kind of the obvious things. What else might you do to really understand those key initiatives? Well, the, the, the number one is, is uh, you kind of touch upon it. So financial reports or even the annual reports, uh, those are the obvious, that's the most obvious source. And there, uh, to your point, there are so many sales and marketeers, salespeople and marketeers that completely miss the matching with the key initiatives. And they, they're also, key initiatives are phenomenal for disqualification or qualification. So look at those. If you're not fitting, get the heck out of there. Uh, at least if you want to pull in the big money. So don't waste your time. And what, what you didn't mention in your, in your list was, we call it research calls. So was really effective that we talk at length about in the book, both to find Trojan horses and to figure out key initiatives, actually to call people. Uh, you, you, you create a, a list of questions that you have and you chop it up and you make short phone calls 
to people further down in the organization. They're not. So typically, you've heard things like always go for the C-suite. People that say that are actually not very good at mega deals. So you need to create a movement from underneath. And once you meet the C-suite, you need to be sharp as H. You need to be really on the ball. So you need to be prepared. So, so the research calls to people with very low titles, they're most of the time much more open to sharing things than the top names. The top names are really trained at not giving away information, whereas people further down are not. They gladly speak and they're not, they're not being poked so, so often. They're not, no one is holding them. So, now, is this um, just a cold call out of the blue you're talking about? Or is this setting up some sort of compensated research program where you're going to give them 50 bucks for 20 minutes? Like, what, how do you actually get people, if you don't know them, how do you get them talking? Well, you know, the, what we talk a lot about in the book is how you pull everything together. And, and so many things are feeding the others. So, for example, when you do a campus marketing and bee swarming, it will come back to later in this, in this talk, you are getting in touch with people across the organization. So among them, you'll have people that want to speak. But yes, even cold calls. So reaching out via email or even, I mean, absolutely cold calls. You find names through LinkedIn with uh, low titles, but in the, the t- kind of departments that you want to speak to, and you call them. Uh, and because, you know, these guys, they don't know if you're trying to recruit them or, or, or whatnot. So, so uh, they not necessarily spending hours with you, but, you know, 15 minutes. Uh, and among them, you'll also find people that you can figure out these can be later used as touring horses. So they are sharing unusually much information. And they, there's also a chance for you to make a mini pitch of what you're trying to achieve. But in those calls, you can quickly figure out what the key initiatives are. The cool thing with key initiatives, if they're not in the annual report, the good thing is that they're so important for any large organization that they're vastly communicated internally. So if, if you speak to 10 people and none of them knows about the key initiatives, there's something wrong with that company on a completely different level. And you might not want to work with them anyway. But uh, the key initiatives are so important that they are communicated frequently. So most people will know roughly what they're about. At least. How do you get started with an operation like this? I'm, I'm thinking about the order of operations and you know what comes in where you could start with some broad-based account-based marketing and try to build a little bit of brand and a little bit of engagement and then move into what you're talking about now, having these kind of conversations that can really help and you sharpen your message. And maybe because of that pre-work you've done on brand, people will be more willing to pick up the phone and talk to you or otherwise engage. Or you start with, with what you're talking about and kind of get your, your messaging and your insights right before you start doing any ABM. How do you think about that order of operations? I agree with you with your second option. So what you do, because you don't want to spend a lot of energy and resources, not even ABM and what, and, and what have you, before you know if, if there's a theoretical fit. So first thing you do is the annual report. I mean, that's the, the go-to place find out what the customer strategy is and what the key initiatives are. And in a lot of American listed companies, it's even stated who is the lead person of the key initiative and how they're rewarded. But even that, if that is not there, you, you find them, that's kind of the, the number one place to go to. If that fails, or even if that doesn't fail, 
you, you make, I mean, this is simple. You, you look, let's say you want to reach the people in the marketing team. You go for a few really low titles, look them up on LinkedIn. So you can't call the switchman and say, I want to talk to someone of this title that doesn't work, obviously. So you go, okay, I want to speak to this Stephen Watson. He's art director, blah, 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 or whatever. So, so you kind of, you go for really low titles and you make really short calls. Then if that is then a, you, you feel, okay, we have a match here. Then you start your e-swarming. So visiting a lot of LinkedIn profiles, you start connecting with people, but you also start your campus marketing approach. If, you, if you're into really heavy B2B sales, I, I would pull it even further before I engage and, and um, I would have my first one, two customer meetings before I engaged with, with ABM. So, so um, I think, well, that's kind of maybe a deviation of our discussion, but a lot of ABM is misused today. The, there's, to get into an organization, I mean, unless, unless you've said, okay, whatever it takes, we're making a deal with this company. I don't care about key initiative or anything. I'm going to start working with them regardless then do ABM even before making any kind of research. But for 99% of all cases, put the weight on uh, later. So you make small injections of contacts with the, with the account uh, and, and you figure out if you have a match. And then you run a meeting or two with some people for, I mean, it's kind of mid-level really clarify if there, is a, if, there is a, if there is a match and even doing a short pitch of what you're doing. If that is a go-ahead, then you start to push a, a, a account-based advertising primarily to start with. You start to do a team-based bee-swarming approach where you visit a lot of LinkedIn profiles together and you start to connect with more and more people. And, and, and then when, when, you, when you reach a point of saying, okay, this is now a really, this deal is now really going to materialize. So we have a clear fit with them, it's even confirmed by the customer, then you put in even very personalized ABM. So you, you, you like, I mean, through account-based advertising where you really tailor the messaging to that account to, to really push the deal. Uh, I mean, a quick comment on that. If you make kind of medium-sized and small deals and still do ABM, then you should maybe satisfy with segment-specific messaging or and face-specific messaging. You shouldn't do account specific messaging is kind of heavy but if you do really if you really do mega deals then you should definitely do uh pay attention to to making it more account specific absolutely christopher you spoke in episode one about a ceo like mindset and you said that the top mega deal sellers think and operate like ceos i'd like to explore that a little bit more and again, ask you how all of us can strengthen that muscle so that we think and operate like CEOs, regardless of the sort of deal size in which we operate. Right. So first of all, the personality trait, would you find, uh, and we've interviewed many of these from around the world, they, if you line up 100 CEOs and 100 salespeople, I'm sure all of you listening can kind of roughly tell the difference. Uh, I mean, not person by person, but in general. And these mega dealers are way more CEO-like. They're, they're firmer in their approach. 
they're not, I mean, they can be very happy people, but they're not necessarily the high fivers. I mean, just to point that out, I'm, I, I do high five a lot. So it's not that high five is bad, but it's not, it's kind of quite, quite solid personalities. And also from a skill set perspective, they are very drilled on, on the financials, on the legal stuff, and much, a quite broad portfolio of skills. And we do cover uh, mega deal financing and contracting uh, in the book. And those two areas in particular, for people wanting to go into this space, is a big gap, I think. Uh, very few normal salespeople are skilled enough in the financing and, and, uh, and contracting space. Give you some examples. So a CEO is very results focused, very financially oriented. What, what else would go into yeah, cynical. looking at a s- cynical? Yeah, cynical. So uh, this is a trait by, that you find in, in almost all mega dealers. They're really cynical when it comes to disqualifying opportunities. So let's say you're, you and your team are a, a prospect and then they know that to have a very high likelihood of closing a deal and a big enough de- the deal there are five criteria that need to be fulfilled. If two of them are failing with you, they immediately pull out. So very kind of cold about the fact that, okay, this is uh, very good with, uh, with uh, probabilities. So kind of quite cynically looking at, at, uh, at the chances of winning. And if it's low, they immediately exit. So, so you don't find, in mega dealers, you don't find so much what's called sunshine pumping where their, their case is hanging around. And when the sales leader or the CEO is asking, so Steve, how, how's this deal going? And you go, yeah, 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 it's still opportunity. You know, they're really interested. Yeah, but it's been standstill for six months. Those kind of things are much rare, uh, much more rare to find in the portfolio, I mean, in the, in the pipeline portfolio of a mega dealer because they're just personality-wise super hard against themselves. So they exit early. If they can. Interesting. I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago when you, you talked about these Trojans, these people on the inside, often in lower levels who are giving key information. And I'm, I'm wondering to what extent your mega deal methodology dovetails with the challenger sale I mean, there's, there's some obvious overlap here. Um, I, I, I mean, I, when you talk about the Trojans, I sort of see, you know, potentially parallels with mobilizers and influencers within, within the organization. And uh, w- when I hear this talk about the CEO mindset, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, there's perhaps some parallels with a challenger mindset. How do you think about ways in which your mega deal approach is similar to and different from a challenger methodology. No, so so we we even have cases. So so in parallel with the book, we have together with the uh, Nordics CEO MX and the the guy who ran sales training the sales training team internationally for MX. They they created Mega Deal Advisory, which is a uh, we run workshops, seminars, and, and coaching, etc. So um, what uh, what we often say to clients is that. The recommended dialogue technique book is challenger sales. So if you want to have two books combined, you should do challenger sales combined with mega deals because covering mostly different things. So there, there's a, 
So, so we, we don't talk about how to run the dialogue. They do a lot of that. We're way more into orchestration. So we cover, okay, how do you get sales and marketing to cooperate around this? What kind of techniques do you use? You, you don't see much of the techniques and, and like how to use various tools and stuff and, and, and challenge sale. So it's a lot about this personality types of the salespeople. But what, where there is a clear similarity, which is why I think uh, there is a match between the two, but they're kind of, they're not, I mean, there might be like a five, 10% overlap, but it's very small overlap because we're covering different things. We're not talking so much about how to run the sales dialogue. But what you find is that when we describe the mega dealers, you find that they are very much the challengers. So, so that is probably what, what, uh, what creates a ping inside, inside your thinking, right? I mean, there is, we can see that the best mega dealers are very challenger-like in their, their approach. So they are cynical. They're kind of, they're, 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 they've studied the accounts thoroughly, so they know a lot about them. They, they're good at creating big networks within these accounts and in the ecosystem. They're good at uh, uh, engaging in many different hierarchical levels and, and also different domains. So yeah, I, I can definitely say that uh, the mega dealers we've interviewed, especially the ones that in, in wherever they go, the serial mega dealers, like the serial killers, the serial mega dealers, they are uh, the cynical side is very much aligned with the challenge sale uh, personality that they describe and that method. But they're we're into orchestration and how to blend social media marketing and, and, and sales and, and run that as a team approach and all of that and kind of the tick boxes, whereas the challenge sales more into how to run the sales dialogue. So highly compatible, I would say. We've talked a lot about the mindsets and the activities of the individual mega dealer. What role does brand play in all of this? So this is, this is very interesting. I'm glad you bring that up. So the thing, what's been kind of the, the myth is that in the B2C space, brand is the king. And in the, in, in the B2B space, it's all about the salespeople. But there, there's been for quite a while now, a lot of studies showing that the sensitivity to the brand is way higher in the complex B2B space. And, and, and that is not, it's actually common sense if you think about it, because what is huge in the B2B space is risk. And trust. So, uh, and and the brand. And if you have a good brand platform that is well articulated, both in media, in in social media, in various kind of marketing material among the salespeople, if that is aligned, so a good brand platform, a good messaging platform, if those two are aligned with both sales and marketing, and even people like customer success, etc., that is very strong, and and that that is reducing the perceived risk of a large B2B deal. So, and this is something that Kahneman has proven as well. So I don't remember if it's three, four or five variables, but the, the human brain can handle very little complexity. So imagine buying a, a, a big ERP system. It doesn't have three, four or five variables. It might have 500 variables. And the human brain can just, it can't handle such a big complexity. So then our reaction is to move back into our comfort zone, which, which is to trust our gut. And the gut is a lot focused on the, the perceived risks and the perceived trust factors, which is very brand related, right? That would seem to give a huge advantage to large global brands. 
who have decades of experience and recognition behind them and, and vast brand credibility. But I know that you personally have had a lot of success and with Climon, you were selling, you were going up against GE and other global giants and, mm-hmm. and you were winning. Did, yeah. did, brand, did brand contribute to those wins or did you do that in spite of a, of a lack of brand power? No, I would say, I would say, so there are two aspects to this. Let's come back to the brand in a minute. So one thing that is really interesting if you study big corporations, so people tend to say they're bad at innovation. They're not necessarily bad at innovation. They're bad at commercializing innovation. So Jeffrey Moore has, has described this thoroughly together with Michael Eckert and those guys in the book, Zone to Win. So what they talk about is mode one and mode two. So big companies... Uh, when, when they've become really strong in their position about their old offering, their, their sales and marketing is turning around. So they're mostly responding to RFPs. So that's mode one for you. When these, the same organization is launching a new product, they're being thrown into mode two, which is where you have to create the market. You have to sell the category, not only the product and why you're better than your competitor, you have to sell the whole category. You have to even sell... The why, like why are you even? Why do you even need to change? So you have to. It's a different approach to sales and marketing, and in zone to win, they call it mode two. And big corporations are actually, in general, pretty bad at mode two, which is why this is why us entrepreneurs can really do the David and Goliath thing, where we can really beat them because we're pretty good at mode two. So, so one of the things I often, when I speak to to the global corporations. I've spoken to several of the top management teams there. I talk about the mode one and mode two and how the whole mega deal recipe is actually really applicable, particularly for mode two, where you need to take control over, over your, your destiny. And then going back to, to your, your brand comments, so what we did at Climon where we grow, where we grew the, the, the contracting from three to $90 million in just two years, selling... Uh, green power plants, producing green electricity from hot water. One of the things we really did was to put more money behind marketing than we did behind sales, which is kind of unheard of in the power plant industry. In most B2B spaces, unheard of. So we, we spent more money on marketing than on sales. And, and we, we did a lot of really high quality content, videos, articles, etc. On, on thought leadership, positioning, brand, etc. So, and we did it a lot account-based actually. So we used a lot of account based advertising and other account based marketing tactics to really influence the 95 accounts that we had identified as our top, top, top prospects. And we did some quite heavy marketing against those. So, so the Climate brand, in their eyes, got really elevated. In just, in just a few months, we started to notice this. And so in two years, we turned, a, and this is kind of just an indicator. So we had one request per month when I started. We had one and a half per day uh, when, I, when I left two years later. So we, we created such a wave of demand from being a kind of thought leadership style videos and, and articles and also doing a lot of keynotes on, on big conferences. We even managed to almost never pay to be on the big stage by, by having, which is, we actually got, we can't cover it in our talk, Steve, but there's a big piece in the book about messaging architecture. So if you structure that right, that's a killer. So by just structuring that right, we could be keynote speaking and have the highest score on most conferences and being sought for 
even though we were representing a vendor. How much of your success in, uh, you know, punching above your weight, as you'd say there, you, you as a, quite a small company, you were able to make huge waves in, in the marketing space, elevate the brand and, and put yourself on those stages and, and drive all that amount of demand. How much of that comes from the fact that you personally brought some personal brand and you brought some, some credibility from your pre-climb on days and you had this whole mega deals thing going. And I guess what I'm getting at was how much of that tough question to ask someone to, to I, reflect I on. How much was you versus how much was the company? And, and the other way of asking that is how much could I or someone else replicate what you did? With climate. Yeah, so, so the cool thing here is that I have zero background in the energy industry. And, and at Climon, we target uh, segments like the cement industry, the steel industry. We, we target the oil and gas industry in US and Canada, for example. We, we target industries where I have zero track record. I have zero brand name there. I might have a, some kind of brand name within the complex selling, marketing, and sales kind of space and, and both from the ABM days, but also from the mega deal, uh, from the mega deal research and book. But in, so I, I, uh, in the, in those segments, I kind of started from scratch. So it was, I would say it's, it's all method based. So, which is kind of the good news. You can, you can copy it. And we also managed to get the whole team to really play well in this kind of orchestration. So because there's some, there's some, I mean, if you ask me, some of the things we did at Climb and that, and that we describe in the book are really simple. Like, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to, to really do them. You just need to get started and then you, you, you chew them up one by one and then you do it. it. It's actually not a big thing. I think it's way harder to train a team on, on I mean, it's... Um, a lot more failing on lack of talent when it comes to running dialogue, the dialogue technique. So I think that, that you can you can change a magnitude of different. You can do magnitude of difference by adding the Megalil framework with actually fairly little effort. I wouldn't say lit, maybe little is an exaggeration, but moderate effort. Whereas getting a team to to learn dialogue techniques is trickier. I want to take you back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago. You mentioned category design, and that was the first time in our conversations that's come up. It's a huge topic. It's something that I have become really excited about in recent years. And I'm interested in your take on it because you said something in the first episode that seems the opposite of category design. You said that in mega deals, you want to be slightly better than the other guy, yeah. but you don't want to be too unique because right. being too unique introduces too much right. risk. And if yeah. I recall correctly, you said you want to be a little bit better than the other guy, but then you want to be really good at surfacing and mitigating and managing that risk so that you build the trust to get this mega deal done. But then in today's episode, you mentioned category design and creating something entirely new. How do you reconcile those in your own mind and how do those come together in the mega deal philosophy? Right. So I don't think I really said fully category design, but going back to the last episode, what, what we've seen in the research is that 
you win the big deals faster by being plus one. Plus one means you're like the others, just a bit different, not a lot different, a bit different. That is, that is where the biggest immediate money is. There's a, there's a whole other thing. So if you want to build a company from scratch that solves some, an existing problem in a completely new way, you, you might still want to create a new category because that, that is a long-term game. But if you want to do mega deals soon or tomorrow or really fast, you should think plus one. So for a startup, it might make sense to be designing a category. For an immediate kind of startup having grown up a bit, you either have already succeeded in creating that category, so you don't need to do the plus one anymore. You kind of, well, you, you want to do the plus one a bit, but you have a new category now. But to do the really large deals, you can't come with a completely new category because that's often associated with risk. And if you look at the Gartner hype curve, for example, so very early in a new category, there's a lot of buzz, but very little money spent. So actually going back to the money again. So if you want to go for the money now, do plus one. If you want to, if you want to have a, a unique new company, design a new category. That makes a lot of sense. So they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. They're more time, more time-based perhaps. Yeah. Situation and timing based, situation specific and timing based. So for example, proof where I run sales or marketing, I'm the lead investor. So we do plus one. So marketing mix modeling among the biggest companies in the world is a well-established category. Uh, it's based on, so trying to determine how you should spend the sales and marketing money by using regression modeling. That is, that is however, very heavy because you need to use PhDs in mathematics and they, there's a scarcity. So that category doesn't scale. Our plus one is that we're the first in the world having automated the model generation. So, and that kind of cuts the model creation down from, from weeks and months to seconds. So we've automated marketing mix modeling. So our plus one is automated MMM as opposed to MMM. So, so that's not a new category. It's a plus one. Uh, that doesn't mean it's approved. It's not doing mega deals. We're helping companies both on the B2B and B2C side to optimize their sales and marketing spend to grow faster or to have higher profits. But it's very, it's very strategic. And it, it's often, so many of the mega deal companies in the world are, are using it already. Tell us quickly before we close out, what's bee swarming? So bee swarming is, is imagine you're standing in the reception of Honeywell. You, 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 you're in the head office at Honeywell. You want to make a mega deal with them. You have quite a few, well, you've had three, four meetings with them. You know that I can't meet the 200-ish stakeholders that somehow have a touch point with what I'm doing. Um, so the, the analogy comes from having Steve, a brand of bees that you have in your hand and you launch them and they fly around in the organization giving quite simple messages to the people that you will never meet. So they at least know what Steve Inc. is and that they know what kind of problems you're solving, what kind of category you're in and why you're credible. And what you do in real life is that you basically make a search. So you take your target account, you search for using a few keywords because you can't visit everyone in Honeywell. So you shrink it down to 100, 200 people, and you then visit these LinkedIn profiles and you do it as a team. So you and a few of your team members are visiting the same profiles. You're basically using the same sales navigator query 
and you visit those profiles. And, and what happens is that, especially when you do this as a team, I think it's a vast difference when you do it as a team as opposed to doing it as an individual. So when you have all of a sudden, and you can imagine this, when you have five people from Prove visiting you, Steve, you go, what's going on? Are they trying to recruit me? Uh, did they just have a meeting about me or what's going on? You get really curious and there's a high likelihood you either check us out on LinkedIn or that you even go to proofanalytics.ai to figure out what we're about. So, so it's, it's triggering your interest in a, in a weird way without, we're not sending any messages. We're, we're kind of just saying, hello, <laughs> and then we move on. So that's Beast for me. Awesome. Christopher, thanks so much again for joining us. This has been another fantastic talk. For anyone who missed the first episode, please go back and check that out. The two of them together are just a, a window into the work you're doing, the, the tremendous work that you're doing. Uh, I'm sure we will all be excited to get our hands on the book when it comes out this August. Mega deals, how multi-billion dollar deals are done and what the rest of us can learn from it. I know I am super excited to dig deep into that book. And Christopher, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.